Yeah, well, thank you for uh, the opportunity to do this. I'm quite excited about this because it's a subject that I um, come back to time and time again uh, in my own life, I mean. Um, uh, it, I can't really get away from it. Um, it. Broadly speaking, it's about the nature and the character of God. And uh, as Rich said, there's two parts to it. Um, so this is the in intro, really. Um, we talked a few weeks back, didn't we, about centering our lives around God. Do you remember that? The stick and the circles and the, yeah, and then Rich did follow up on that as well. And we talked about why we should center our lives on God. And there was one overarching reason. Can anyone remember what that was? Because he's God, because of who he is. Not because we need him or because he's kind and generous or because he can work miracles and give us a sense of identity. And All those things are true, but it's because he's God. And for me, that begs the question, who is God then? Who is he? Who are we allowing to have prime position in our lives? What's he like? Can we trust him? Is he consistent? And there's another question that's worth answering. How do we start to find out about him? Well, we have several options. We can find out from other people. We can read books. We can talk to people. We can listen to testimonies. We can read the Bible, particularly the bits about Jesus, because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his nature. So that will give us a lot of clues about who God is. Or we can find the bits in the Bible where God speaks about himself. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going back to the Sinai Desert, back to the days of Exodus, before the nation of Israel was even a thing, way back, to find out what God says about himself, or to put it another way, chill, can you? Yeah, that's, who does God think he is? And before we start, I just, I just want to say this quickly, I can only take you as far as I've gone myself. I can only let you in on the knowledge and the understanding that I have right now. And, and that's true for everyone, isn't it, who, who, who speaks. But just bear that in mind, this is not the last word about who God is, okay? This is where we are now. And, and there's one more thing I just want to say quickly. If you think of this talk a bit like a tree or, or, or a road... Um, at points, it branches off in different directions. Now, we can't realistically explore all the branches this morning, but we can go down one or two as time allows, and some of the bigger ones we're going to leave till next week. So let's keep that in your head. So who does God think he is? Well, I'm going to start with God's name, and we've had quite a few talk and singing about that already this morning, which is good. Um, the reason I'm going to start with God's name is that in Hebrew socio-culture and history, the meaning of somebody's name was really important. It's probably still the same today. For a Hebrew person living in Bible times, what you were named or what you were called or what you called yourself encapsulated who you were, your identity, your personality, maybe even your destiny. And if you think about some of these names, I'm going to run through um, some of these guys quite quickly. Abraham means the father of many. And God changed his name. Originally, it was Abraham, but he changed it to Abraham, father of many. And he's the father of the Jewish religion. Um, and ours as well, actually. Um, or David, King David, beloved of God. Or Eve, bearer of life. Or Jesus, the son of God. Or the one who saves, depending on whether you're going to interpret it Greek or Hebrew. So all of that gives you quite a large clue about those people, doesn't it? And how their lives turned out. So does anyone here know what their name means? 
David. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> no, you can't ask that because I've told you. Okay, Rachel. Sheep. Sheep. <laughs> Helen. It means light. Anyone else? Margaret. Pearl. Beautiful. Anne. Grace. Oh, how amazing. So, Rich. Strong ruler. Look at that. Excellent. My name is Nita, and I come from a Gujarati slash Hindi-speaking family. One day I said to my mum, why did you call me Nita and not Anita? Because in those days, Nita was quite an unusual, well, probably still is, actually. But Anita was much more English, and you know, people used to say it was a bit weird, you've got an A missing, you know. Why did you call me Nita and not Anita? And she said that in their language, Nita means honesty, and Anita means dishonesty. My parents obviously did not want to name me after a character trait that's negative. Good on them. Perhaps they wanted to be able to say, Nita by name, Nita by nature. Sadly, much of my life has in fact been characterised by dishonesty, but we're not going to go there. So. so in my mum and dad's thinking, the meaning of a person's name is really important, and it's the true with God as well. His name encapsulates the essence of who he is and what he's like. His name is his nature. And the reason I know that is because that's what God says in the Bible. <laughs> so what's God's name then? Well, I'm going to start by telling you what it isn't. God's name is not God, which is a bit odd, really, because that's a name we pretty much use all the time. <laughs> so why do we call him God? Well, back in the day, God was a name for what humans perceived as any kind of spiritual being. Anything that had a mystery or that was unexplainable belonged in the God box. Um, and that enabled people to give a kind of personality to something that they didn't understand or they couldn't see or they couldn't control but had an effect on them. So, for example, you know all this, there were gods who had jurisdiction over things like the rain, the sun, the wind, fertility, war, peace, all of that. Um, People really believed in the reality of these gods and worshipped them. And just as an aside, make no mistake, <laughs> these invisible godlike creatures, whatever you want to call them, were real and are real, and they have real power. And there's always some kind of spiritual being behind whatever humans choose to worship. But that's one of those branches that we can't get down today. Now, you can ask me about that after if you want. Anyway, so back to gods in biblical times. Because people couldn't see them, they made figures of them, men or beasts or whatever, to represent them. They sacrificed to them. They prayed for things like good harvest, good women, health, you know, prosperity for themselves, death for the enemies. You get the drift. Gods were part of the culture of the time. But the Bible makes a really big claim and says that the God, our God, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, is a cut, a cut above the rest. He is in a whole other category. So at the beginning of the Bible, he's just called God with a capital G, but that's not his name. That's just a way of elevating him above us. Bit by bit through Genesis, God reveals more and more about himself to the people he chooses to work with, but he doesn't tell them his name. We get to Abraham, which is maybe halfway or a bit, earlier through Genesis, God explains he's God Almighty. In other words, I am a God far above all other gods, like we've just said. But God Almighty is still not God's name. It's just a title or a description of his seniority, just like the queen's name is not queen. 
It's just a title of her description and her role. Are you with me? So, does anyone know where in the Bible we first come across God's name? Okay. Moses, right. So, that's Exodus, second book of the Bible. And Exodus is a story of how the Israelites escaped from Egypt, where they were in slavery, and journeyed to the new land. It's a massively important story for Jewish history, and it's got everything to do with the Middle East today. Um, unfortunately, we can't look at it in any detail right now, so if you don't know what happens, you're going to have to read it for yourself. But I will do a rather aggressive summary of the book of Exodus, because there are two points I want to get to. So this is aggressive summary, part one. At the beginning of Exodus, we meet Moses, a Hebrew child, born into slavery in a foreign country. He was meant to be put to death at birth, but instead he gets to live like a prince in the royal Egyptian palace. When he's a young man, he messes things up and escapes from Egypt in order to stay alive. In his late 70s, he has a conversation with God next to a burning bush in the desert. So we're going to stop here a while. And in this conversation, God asked Moses to be the front man for his people, to speak to the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh to you and me, and persuade him to let the Israelites go free. And Pharaoh was a cruel, cruel man. He was not known for his compassion or his kindness. I know if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you might think differently, but he was, he was a cruel man. And certainly he was not likely to want to lose all the thousands and thousands of slaves whose workload allowed him and his household and the rest of the Egyptians to live in relative luxury. So part of Moses' conversation goes a bit like this. I'm just paraphrasing in case you wonder. Moses says, who am I to speak to Pharaoh and tell him what to do? And God's answer is, I will be with you. I am with you. That's what gives you the authority to speak to Pharaoh. I am all you need. And then Moses basically says, okay, that sounds great, but who are you? Who actually are you? Because we know you're the God of Abraham. We know your titles and Isaac and Jacob, but they were all a long time ago. We know the stories, but what shall I tell the Israelites when they ask who has sent me? What name can I give to this authority that I'm carrying? What is your actual name, God? Or if you wanted a more literal Hebrew translation, he actually says something like, who is your name? Like, not what are you called, but who are you? Um, very tempting to break out into song there, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> for the sake of the other people listening. And what does God answer Moses? I am. I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. Whatever I am, I will be. And the sense of the Hebrew phrase, I am who I am, is whatever I am, I will be. And the best English translation for the I am name of God is Yahweh. If you were around in Europe before the 1600s and had a Latin Bible, then it would have been translated as Jehovah. It's the same name, Yahweh, Jehovah. So if Yahweh is God's name, why don't we use it? Well, that's because of the third commandment in the Jewish law. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. And the Jews were really careful not to do this. And eventually they thought the safest thing was not to even write or say the word Yahweh in case they did it by accident and broke the commandment. So they kept well away from it. They used other names instead, and they still do. And actually, so do we, which is why we use the name God. 
I think it's a bit of a shame, really, because, like we said earlier, God isn't, you know, it's not about who he is. It's like a title, isn't it? They're, they're just descriptive. They don't express God's nature in the way the name Yahweh does, as we'll find out. Um, so we don't have, like, a regular reminder of who God is whenever we pray or speak about him. And you can still tell in your Bibles when God is referred to by the name Yahweh, because in most English translations, they'll use the word Lord, but they'll do it in capital letters. And that, if you see that, you think, ah, that's Yahweh. That was what the person was, that was the word the person was using. Sometimes it's worth knowing that. So here's where we're at. We've heard God's name for the first time. And just for fun, I'm going to try and use it in the, in the next little section. I'm going to use the word Yahweh instead of God. Let's see how I do. So, after he tells Moses his name, Yahweh says this, I hope. This is my name forever, the name you will call me from generation to generation. That's in Exodus 33. So it was clearly important to Yahweh that the Israelites knew his name, knew what it represented, and passed it on to their children and grandchildren. And they must have done that, because we know about it. So aggressive summary coming up, part two coming up now. So the Israelites eventually escape from Egypt under Moses' leadership. They start the journey to their new land. They experience Yahweh's daily provision, presence, and protection. Then Yahweh calls Moses up a mountain to give him laws and commands to prepare them for their life in the new land because Yahweh wanted the Israelites to govern themselves according to his design for a healthy society and not to copy the religious and social behavior of the people around them. So Moses goes off up a mountain to meet with Yahweh and he's gone for quite a while. Meanwhile, the Israelites throw a wobbly because they don't have anyone or anything who can represent Yahweh and tell them what to do. They literally have a meltdown and finish up with a golden calf, which they start to worship. Moses gets very upset, and to make matters worse, Yahweh tells Moses that because of the cow thing, he is prepared to send his angel to the new land, but he himself is not going to go with them. And the people are devastated, and Moses is devastated. Good, I think I've done all my Yahweh's now. I'm just going to drop it in there and again. <laughs> so I want to stop here. We're in Exodus 33. Moses is devastated. The people are devastated. I'm leaving lots of bits out, okay, because there's a lot of repentance and forgiveness that you're just going to have to read it, okay? So after the bad news, the next thing Moses does is go into this thing called the tent of meeting, and he set this up in the Israelite camp, as a place for him to speak to God. And he makes two requests. First request, Moses asks God to change his mind and please accompany them into the promised land because by now he's begun to realize how absolutely vital God's presence is and he's frankly not prepared to go anywhere or lead anyone unless God goes with him. And Yahweh says something incredible to Moses, I think. I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So, so Moses basically gets Yahweh, the unchangeable God, the same yesterday, today, forever, that, that Yahweh to change his mind. And that's, that's a something, isn't it? God sometimes changes his mind. In what circumstances? It's 
definitely worth some consideration in the context of what we believe about God. But you'll have to think about that for yourselves because that's a branch I haven't got time to go down either. (laughs) And then the other thing in this section that I think is a real something and I would like to come back to if there is time is this. Part of God's reason for agreeing to Moses' request is that he says, I know you by name. And to me, that seems quite significant. I find it interesting and a bit weird. And as I said, if there's time, I will come back to that at the end. So that was the first request. Please come with us. Second request, having achieved one success, (laughs) he thinks, oh, let me try another one. He says, now, show me your glory. I don't know what kind of question is that. And actually, what even is glory? When I was reading it and preparing, I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I know what, what glory is. And so I had a quick sort of look up in the dictionary. So we'll just go down a quick branch again. Um, the dictionary definition of glory is high renown, honor, distinction, great beauty, great magnificence. And here's the, the one I really like, the crucial one. The manifestation of God's heavy presence as witnessed by human beings. That's what Moses wants to see. That's what he's after. And God's answer to the glory question is this. Yeah, you can see my glory. And this is how. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name in your presence. So wait a minute. Where does goodness come into it? Moses didn't ask to see God's goodness. He asked to see his glory. What's going on here? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> We're going to go down another little branch here and talk about the goodness of God for a minute. Um, and I've got a, bit of a little bit of a testimony here. Some years ago, when I first came across a description of Yahweh's name, which we'll get to in a minute, um, I was actually quite upset. And I don't get me wrong, I love the description, but I, I was really troubled by the fact that the word good doesn't appear in it. You have to take my word for it, okay? But it doesn't appear in the description. I could not understand why goodness would not be a part of God's nature. And it began to give me a real problem because for me, the fact that God is good underpins my whole thinking and that underpins my whole life. So I felt very upset about this and I I just didn't get it and it seemed to me that maybe goodness was some kind of lesser quality that that wasn't fit to be included in God's character and it also made a nonsense of other passages of scripture and other bible stories about the goodness of God and it just basically I was in a stew about it for quite a while until one day I got round to reading that bit we've just read which is in the chapter before the big reveal about God's nature and then I got it I will cause my goodness to pass by you. Yahweh's glory is his goodness. And his goodness is his name, which is explained by his character. God's glory is his goodness. And his goodness is the sum of everything in his nature that makes him who he is. I got it. (laughs) Moses asked to see God's glory and God says, here it is. It's my goodness. Everything about me springs from my goodness. And it's shown by my name. I'm good to the core. You cannot have Yahweh without having good. That's my glory. That's what you're going to experience, my goodness. I'm so happy. (laughs) And I realize this. I'm so happy to know that goodness isn't just a character trait. It's actually bound up in the whole of who God is. 
Um, and this must have been a very important concept for the Jews as well, which they also passed down through the generation, because many years later, when Israel is a well-established nation in True Chronicles, Solomon's finished building the temple and is having a huge dedication ceremony, you know, bigger than royal weddings and platy-jubes and all that kind of thing. <laughs> platy-jubes, yeah. Um, and while this is happening, fire comes down from heaven, consumes all the offerings, and the Bible says this, the glory of Yahweh came down, because it says the Lord in capital letters, the glory of Yahweh came down and filled the temple. And no one could go into the temple because it was so immense. They just couldn't go in. When the people saw this, they fell on their faces. And what did they say in response? And Ken Bartels would know this if he was here. <laughs> they said, you are good and your love endures forever. And when I used to read this, I always thought that was a weird response. It didn't compute to me that you could see the glory of God and your first thing was, oh, you are good. Until two days ago, when I was writing this, and suddenly I joined the dots. And I thought, yes, the nation of Israel knew that God's glory is his goodness because they knew that story about Moses passed down through the generation. They experienced the glory of God for themselves and their knee-jerk reaction was, you are good. That's quite mind-blowing to me. So, okay, back to the tree now. <laughs> So Yahweh says to Moses, I will allow you to see my glory. This is what it means. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name in your presence. Make some preparations, Moses, and I'll see you on the mountain tomorrow. So, excuse me. So Moses does all that, goes up the mountain, tucks himself into a narrow space between two rocks, and he waits to see what will happen. And a cloud comes down to the mountain where Moses is, and a voice says this. The Lord, the Lord, capital letters. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's who God is. That's what he says about himself. That's his glory. That's his goodness. That's his nature. All of it, even that bit at the end. And it's very often quoted in the Bible, particularly verse 6. You get it in the Psalms. You get it all over the place. So I don't think we've got time to read it again, but I think you will agree with me, that most of this passage is really great. We love the compassionate and the faithful and all of that. I don't need to take you through all of those character traits because we do that all the time. Your daily readings do it. The songs we sing do it. They do a great job. We're very familiar with those aspects of God's nature and we love them. But what are we going to do about the bit at the end? The thing that no one wants to talk about, the bit that brings along a cloud to rain on our parade, punishing people for someone else's sin to the third and fourth generation. What is going on there? As someone once said to me a while ago, it's just not very nice, is it? Because I guess the truth is we all want a nice God. Maybe when we first became a follower of Jesus, we were given the gospel of nice. So it is a bit of a shock to see this passage and realize that if Jesus is indeed the exact representation of God's nature and God's nature is expressed in this passage, then, shock horror, maybe he's not as nice as we were first led to believe. 
And I wonder if that's why a lot of people disconnect the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. We can handle love, forgiveness, compassion, mercy, grace, no problem. We're encouraged to focus on them and, and be thankful for those things. And that is good and right that we do that. And actually, there is a bit of a downside to that because sometimes we use those attributes to justify behaviours and lifestyles which are not aligned to the word of God. Anyway. But when it comes to scriptures and stories about God's judgment, his justice, his discipline or divine correction, or the horrible consequences of sin, we tend to put those at arm's length. We say things like, oh, I don't know how a God of love could do that or say that doesn't fit with what I believe. God I know wouldn't do that. Or Jesus never said anything like that, did he? The main thing for Jesus was love. Surely I can relate to Jesus. I can relate to God as Father, but I can't relate to that. Well, I've got news for you. It's the same God. Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes who he is. He did not alter his nature at the end of the Old Testament in order to appeal to people through Jesus or to become more user-friendly. No. He is as he has always been. I am who I am. Whatever I am, I will be. So, accepting this passage in its entirety is non-negotiable. Unless you think that what we think about God trumps what he says about himself. So bear with me. And just accept for now that these verses really do speak the truth about who God is, because God doesn't lie. And then we'll talk about that bit at the end next week and try and tackle the questions that he throws up. I might have some answers by then. <laughs> um, but I think I'd like to end this morning by exploring another branch of the tree. I'd like to go back to Moses' first request in the tent of meeting, you know, the one where he persuades God to change his mind and not abandon the Israelites. And if you remember, God's answer to Moses was this. I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. We've already had a bit of a reference to this this morning. When I was preparing and researching for today, I think God showed me something. Um, I often talk a lot about the importance of us knowing God, who he is, what he's like. That's part of what this is about. But I think God may be saying this to us. It's not just about you knowing me. It's also about you being known by me. That opens a whole other door. For God to say he knows us seems to me to be like another level of relationship. I would love God to say, need to tribe? Oh yes, I'm pleased with her and I know her by name. I would love that. That's something mysterious and enticing that I, would, I really would love. Because I get that God does know everyone. Of course he does. He made us. Every piece of information relating to every person in every place on the planet is known by God. He doesn't need Google. He just knows it. But to me, this is a different kind of knowing. And I think there's a certain level of permission that we can give God to access all areas of our life. He doesn't force it or demand it, so it's up to us. We've got to give it freely. It carries a sort of depth and an intimacy. And just quickly, if we look at Psalm 139, I'm not going to read it all. This is a Psalm of David. O Lord, you see the capital letters there. You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. 
You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And the psalm continues. It goes into all the details of just how deeply God is familiar with our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our intentions. And at the end of the psalm, David freely invites God to search him even more, to examine everything, to challenge and shape him. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's such a sense of surrender and humility here, isn't there? And uh, I wonder about Moses. Is that a transaction that he sort of made somewhere in his desert journey? He, didn't, he wouldn't have known about this psalm because it wasn't written yet, but I wonder if somewhere Moses gave up the kind of, you know, he had this kind of mindset, perhaps when he was an arrogant young man in Egypt who he thought he was so special that he thought it was okay for him to kill uh, a slave master for beating up a Hebrew slave. And he had that, I wonder if he had that, he had that change, you know, and he, he came to the point in the end that he realized, I'm just a servant. I am privileged to have the honor of doing Yahweh's will. I'm blessed with his favor to complete the task of preparing these people to conquer the land that Yahweh has selected for them. Maybe. And I think that, well, I think that if you read the story of Moses with that in mind, I think there are glimpses, oh, there's evidence of his change. But anyway, you'll have to do that for yourself. So what does all of that mean for us? How do we get to be a person who's known by God? Do we even think it's that important? Is there a level of faith in our Christian life which is to do with surrendering our minds, our opinions, our logic, our rational understanding, so they don't obstruct our ability to trust God? Or of not being limited by what God does for us, but allowing ourselves to thank and worship him whatever happens to us? If those things are true, then it's all about the depth of a two-way relationship with God, not just one in which you know him, but one in which you also invite him to know you. Um, and one final thought, which is a little bit more sobering, and I think Rob referred to it earlier on. There's a bit near the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says this, and I'm going to paraphrase again for the sake of time. But it's in Matthew 7. Not everyone who calls me Lord or prophesies or does miracles in my name will enter heaven, only those who do my Father's will. When those other people say to me, but we did all this stuff in your name, and people were healed and delivered, and we saw miracles all in your name, I will say, away from me, I never knew you. And I actually find that quite scary. And it's not the kind of thing we talk about very much. Maybe we should. Maybe it's better to be aware of the danger now and do something about it than find out when it's too late. And to be brutally honest with you, I would rather do the will of God and be known by him, even if it means foregoing the miracles, the signs and the healings, because I long for those. And that's a really difficult sentence for me to say. But if I've learned anything over the last 10 years or so, as I've got to know Moses a bit, I've realized that the presence and the knowledge of God is the most important goal that I can aim for. And everything I do needs to come out of that. So it may feel that I'm ending on a harsh or threatening note, and I don't want to do that. It's not meant to be that. This is meant to be an opportunity for us to pause and reflect and be honest with ourselves. So should we just do that for a few minutes? I'm just going to 
uh, say a couple of things and then, and then we'll, I'll pray. So not everyone's going to want to tackle the question about whether Jesus will say what Jesus will say to us at the end of our lives. But if you do, and if you want to be a person that's known by him, whatever that takes, then this is a good time for you to say that. If you don't see the goodness of God in your life, or you don't really get what it is, then this is a good time to ask the Holy Spirit to show you. If you can't stomach the idea that God's goodness also includes his justice and his perfect judgment on sin, then now is the time to say that and ask him for revelation to help you get it. If you don't have a clue who Jesus is, or the Holy Spirit, or who God is, or even if you're just not quite sure, this is also a good time to ask God to show you, and I or Rich or anyone here that you know will happily talk to you afterwards. So I'm just going to pray, and then we can just maybe just have a minute. So, Yahweh God, we know you are gracious, merciful, compassionate and forgiving. You are perfectly good, perfectly fair and perfectly just. You want to know us completely. You want to show us your ways so we can know you better. We ask you now to speak to us. Show us where we might need to repent, rededicate ourselves or allow you access into the hidden parts of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are gentle and you are good and you have no desire to crush anyone. Amen.